Welcome to the Boldness Disability Current Affairs. My name is Rafael, the biologist Caleb. The Boldness is about standing up for your human rights instead of waiting for some well-meaning person to give them to you. Last month in February, we farewelled Finn Mir, the co-host of The Boldness. I am now flying solo as host of The Boldness. And on today's show, we are talking with Angela Carter, the Disability Policy Officer, the Health and Community Services Union. Welcome to the Boldness on the 16th of March, Angela. Hi, virologist. Thanks for having me. That's fantastic. And it's a great to actually have you on this show. We're going to be talking about a very, very important topic that affects people with a disability and when it's disability it affects everybody in the community. Recently there was a survey that came out and it showed that 31% of disability support workers are planning to leave the sector, change jobs. To me as a disability advocate and activist and as a human being, this is a state of crisis. Now, Angela, would you like to comment on why do you think so many workers from the disability support are planning to leave their jobs? What do you think may have contributed to this? Yeah, thanks for that. And, it's, and it is a really critical issue. This is a workforce that for a couple of years now has already been in crisis around work uh, with workforce shortages. So having that number of staff saying that they are planning to leave is an absolute crisis. Uh, and there are a number of factors that have impacted on this. Uh, COVID, of course, being one of the primary factors. These workers are exhausted. They have been working, um, you know, 12, sometimes for days on end on their own sometimes because of the impact of isolation of staff. That's often been done in relation with, on their, with, without wages or using their own leave credits. And had there been an effective and proper implementation of uh, vaccination, um, access to PCRs and RATs, and uh, proper PPE in the first place, we wouldn't be in this position of them being so exhausted. It was far, far little too late. Uh, we're only now just seeing an announcement about surveillance testing for disability workers that will, um, that, you know, two, two, over two years into the pandemic. So these staff are absolutely exhausted. They've had enough and they are underpaid. Uh, the NDIS, moving to the NDIS framework has um, made for them to 
their job to be a lot harder and less rewarding because of the administrative burdens that they have trying to prove that the people that they're supporting need the supports that they are giving them. So they're spending less time doing that work um, with, with people and having to manage the burdens. And for the providers, um, urologist, for the, to, to provide services under the NDIS fr uh, funding framework, they just can't do it. They have to cut back. They have no choice. So they cut back in training. They cut back in um, uh, um, administrative work. They cut back in support services. And it's unsustainable for providers to continue. And we've already seen a number of service failures. So, you know, if we don't fix uh, the value of, of workers in this sector and we don't pay them well, we don't treat them as priority when it comes to things like pandemic, then you are not, this is never, is not going to improve. We are going to explore the issues one at a time around disability support workers and the state of the crisis of what is actually going on. Now, the first one, which I'm going to tie it together with, some services for people with a disability, such as direct care, people actually need to be in a person's home or workplace in the community to deliver these services. So from, from a pandemic perspective, let's explore protect, protective gear. Now, what actually is the protective gear required to keep people safe? So um, there's different levels of, and um, we refer to it as PPE. So if I use that, you know that I'm talking about, about that. So for to keep people safe in a COVID environment, you need a mask, uh, eyewear, uh, they wear gowns, gloves, and uh, sometimes, and, and those things can change. So some, some of the, the eyewear, you know, will, will be a mask or goggles. Uh, and they obviously can use surgical masks, but for, for real protection, you need to use an N95 mask. Now, so for disability support workers, wearing um, that level of PPE for this period of time, um, they are, it is, it is killing them. You know, and that's just changed, I should say, virologists, that um, the, the rules around PPE just changed so that they're mostly just having to wear a mask now. But people were losing, uh, you know, kilos of weight from the sweat that they were, that was coming out of them from wearing this level of protective wear. And as, as you could imagine, being a person with a disability, having your support worker providing support to you and they look like they're in a hazmat suit, um, you know, it's not, the, it's not the best way to develop rapport uh, and to make people feel like they're, they're being supported by, you know, someone like them. Look, is, and I also totally, I understand that very, very clearly because traditionally much to the detriment of people with a disability and people working in community services, generally speaking, the economy puts them down at the very 
bottom of what I would call the food chain as being very much undervalued, a lot of stress. So we're in the protective gear that was required that one of the attractions of working community services is to actually establish a relationship that is with the people that are around them because the workers are people or persons, people, people, persons, nice little tongue twister (laughs) around them. Now, I imagine that as a worker, having a face mask and everything on them, it almost looks like, oh, my God, we have got the SWAT team in my house trying to help look after me. Would you say that's an accurate assessment of what may have gone on? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And the problem was that in order for providers who were just trying to avoid having to isolate staff, they were using the highest level of PPE at all times, regardless of risk. Um, so, you know, most, most of our members have been wearing, the, you know, two, tier two PPE for the last 12 years. Yep. Now, certainly, then we're going to talk about the cost of the protective gear which people were wearing. Now, I would... It becomes a very tricky area, I think, because I can't get my head around this one. If it's a pandemic, I would tend to think it would have to be a federal government responsibility because my understanding of the Constitution, health is a clearly defined responsibility of the federal governments, not the state government. And I'm quite happy for a lawyer to take me up and say I'm wrong. I am not a lawyer. I am a radio host. So that's the first problem which I have it, but I think I'd be pretty well correct with this. Secondly, who actually provides the actual equipment? Is it for the workplace? If a person's working for an organisation, is it up to the worker themselves to actually purchase the equipment which they would need to actually carry out the job which they need and then would have to almost certainly have to be a tax write-off, I would think, because if you're not wearing the equipment, you can't go to work to do the job, or is it the onus on people with a disability from an NDIS package to find funding to provide the gear? Yeah, so technically uh, the onus is actually on the employer under the Health and Safety Act to, to, to supply PPE. So for um, now in the state of Victoria, and I can speak for Victoria, uh, for those services who were who were funded by the department uh, and were transferred uh, in recent times, the state government provided all of the PPE. So there was no issue once we once it was available. There, there's there's been no real issue there. For the other um, private providers and those not covered by those arrangements, the the obligation was on the employer, but. The federal government uh, has an obligation to have, uh, and so they had stockpiles that they could go to, but they had to have shown that they could not get it themselves in the first place to get it. So they had to jump through so many hoops to get access to that stockpile. And as you say, for other people who are self-employing people, 
then yes, it gets very tricky about where the onus is. Now we know that lots of disability workers have had, have been required to to supply their own PPE, um, and that and so not only are they losing work because they, um, you know, because of the pandemic, uh, they now have to buy their own PPE to keep not only themselves safe, but the people that they're supporting safe, who are the most vulnerable. And it's just a travesty. It, it, it should never have occurred. Yep, and I'm going to actually explore, tease this out a little bit further because we're taking the issues one at a time, breaking it down for the listeners so it's nice and easy for not only for listeners to understand, but more importantly for governments to understand so we actually have got it in a nice, simple format. Now, with social distancing, which was a policy of COVID, if a person is working as a disability support worker, the impact on the quality of life is shocking, is that if there was social distancing, they were working with people that are actually vulnerable, it almost seems to me they would almost be placed in a state of involuntary work away from being home at a time where they would be needing to relax, reconnect with people, try to support their own families. If there are children, they may have relatives to catch up on and suddenly they're being held in this captive place, a home, effectively a jail, in order to do a job which to support vulnerable people, that would have to have a huge impact on stress levels, staff morale, pay. So would the results of the survey of 31% of people are planning to leave the community service into a different role or a different field, that's hardly surprising. Should workers have been given extra pay or compensation packages on top of their ordinary work as a COVID allowance. Absolutely. And uh, unions across the country have been calling for COVID payments to this sector since the beginning, and we still don't have anything. It's been reliant on, and you're right, um, many workers were self-isolating themselves even outside of their work hours to protect the people that they were caring for. And um, they, I think, so I've lost my train of thought. So it, it absolutely, it will. It has an impact, and they sh- should have been uh, given some sort of recognition in a monetary way to recognise the 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 work environment that they have had to work in for the last two years. We we, we did it in health. They paid surge allowances in health for people working in COVID environments. Uh, but the disability sector has had nothing. And it's relied on providers to be the ones to, to fund this. So many providers have done everything they can to support their staff. Uh, so many of them have paid additional allowances, particularly if they've had a COVID-positive um, uh, person that they're supporting but that's been at the cost of that provider and not funded through the NDIS at all uh, and they and it and it becomes and, it, and it's not it's not fair that only only those providers who 
are able to afford to do that, have been able to do that, and not all workers have been given the same uh, access. Well, as well, Andrew, we're going to actually play some community services now, and then we'll be back. If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111 500. That's 1300 111 500. Wellways supports 3CR. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Disability Current Affairs on 3CR. My name is the Barologist, we are talk- I am talking with Angela Carter, the Disability Policy Officer for the Health and Community Services Union, about the state of crisis that is going on in the disability sector with the number of people considering leaving, looking for other roles, and the effect that it will actually have, and looking for possible solutions on why it, what may be done. Now, Angela, let's explore the financial aspects of it. Is it traditionally, unfortunately, that quite often disability support workers, it's a labour of love, traditionally very, very low paid, difficult to survive, usually if a person is working as a disability support worker or community services, often they would be reliant on the weekend shifts to actually have penalty rates involved, the overnight stays looking after people. Now, because of what's actually happened with COVID and disability support workers self-isolating, some of the incentives or initiatives I would have liked to have seen which haven't taken place would be possibly there could have been government support to do with extra superannuation. That would be something which I thought might have been on the cards from the government. I think it was a number of years ago that if people were in lower-paid jobs, the government went through and would match them one for one. Possibly the government might have done a two-for-one offer on the superannuation, put $1,000 in, the government tops it up with $2,000 to help people come in, 
possibly there could have been study allowances into it as well and an administrative allowance for use of the computers, technology to actually do the admin work, which has been the direction, just to comply with doing their actual jobs. Yeah, absolutely. We think that, there, you know, there are lots of things that could have been done to support workers through this period, uh, particularly things like one of the biggest impacts it has been the, the use of their own leave credits where they have them. So, you know, give them back their leave. You know, the workers have exhausted all of their leave isolating and not because they are sick uh, because of other people who have all their or of course through the period where all contacts had to isolate they've they've lost all of their leave credits and now when they are exhausted they have no ability to take any time off and you're right they do this as a passion you know it's a passion job they they don't do it for the pay because it's crap <laughs> they do it because they love working with people and you've got to make that attractive to them it's an unregistered workforce and um an unqualified largely an unqualified workforce so it's you know you've got to have attractive um provisions to attract people to doing such an important job that has such an impact on our communities i totally agree with you but i'm actually going to flip into the role of a devil's advocate here because self-disclosure comes into it, this is the boldness, disability, current affairs, and I take ownership. I have Asperger's syndrome. That is a disability. I have quite a lot of friends with a disability as well. I've also heard the flip side of it where they've actually said that they actually preferred some of their workers in the full equipment so they actually did feel safe as well even though it was the lack of the personal contact. And that's actually one of those very tricky, area, hard areas. Would you like to...? Yeah, and don't, don't you think that it would have been good for them to have been able to feel safe because, they're, because the, the people that they um, were using were able to actually provide a rat test to them? So, you know, if they, if they were able to do surveillance testing... And that's why we, we absolutely understand that, um, that, the, that people wanted to have their workers, the flip side, they wanted people to have their workers in uh, PPE for that purpose to, to make sure they are safe and they feel safe. But we could have done that by having rat tests. We could have done that by having PCR tests that were, that were the results came back uh, quickly for disability workers. So uh, yeah, I think it's about we do need to find better ways to ensure that we're meeting those safety issues and allowing people to feel safe, but in the least uh, restrictive way. And, of course, with disabilities, as you know, we always want to do the least restrictive approach. But for workers, it hasn't been. It certainly, as I said, it's a very tricky area. And then there was also, I'm going to actually throw this into the wild card because it was actually a source of, a lot of anger within the disability community that the rapid, the rapid, the rat test, rapid antigen test, because I would like to get the acronym more or less right, they weren't even available. You couldn't buy them. And so you could literally spend eight hours trying to track down and then you could buy one of them at a time. And as a disability support worker, I would tend to think you might need access to more than one 
from the very nature of the work we were done. And it was a blanket ban. And that actually further isolated people with a disability in the community as far as their self-care, their connection to the community, the quality of their lives that was at the very core of the issue. And again, this was a major failing of, I would say, nearly all the governments that people with a disability are not at the forefront of this conversation, how to connect with everybody else. Yeah, absolutely. And still to this day, the announcement from uh, the federal government is that they'll provide rats to uh, only residential services. Now, you know, there's a whole lot of other services and people with disabilities that, particularly in community, that that is going to be just as important for. And particularly, and, and it means that people have had to make choices about not having support because of the inability to be able to test people supporting them. And so, A, that means that people are getting less support, that they're not getting the support they need, and that workers are losing work. And it's already a casualised workforce. Um, you know, it's been, and, and that's increasing through the NDIS uh, implementation, casualisation in this workforce. So that, that access to rats that is still not being widely available to people with disabilities, and even where they are, so we, we have this, this new announcement, you know, that uh, they can use their core funding to pay for rats. Uh, I'm sorry, but the core funding was funded for core supports. Uh, and let's be really clear, that's a reduction to core supports if you're using it for rats. And if you've got multiple workers seeing you multiple times in the week, we're not talking about the five that you can get from the pharmacy for free a month. Uh, we're talking about possibly multiple rats daily. Um, and they should be accessible to every person with a disability to test any worker that they work with on any day. Well, it's actually, I'm going to uh, finish this uh, because on a little bit of a mathematical note before we actually say goodbye to you, Angelia Carter. At five tests per day, five days a week, now that is $250 a week in rapid antigen tests. Multiply this by 52, so that's about 12500 we then add 40% of that. So we're then looking at around $17,000 gone from the core funding for rapid antigen tests for everyday activities that it's taking away for things like showering, connecting to community, meal preparations, assistance to go somewhere, hello universe, what planet was the government when they were coming up with this kind of ideas? These are the figures that's 17,500 gone from core funding and then die packages quite often. Generally, they're kept to an exit minimum, an absolute disgrace what is actually going on with this one. Thank you very much for your time, Angela. <laughs> thank you, virologists. It's been great to talk to you. Well, thank you very much to Angela Carter, who was the disability policy officer for the Health and Community Services Union. We've been talking about the state of disaster regarding disability support workers. 
The Boulder Disability Current Affairs will be back on Wednesday, the 30th of March. Keep listening to 3CR. If you don't think the revolution has started, you're listening to the wrong station. Let's go out with a song. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Get in, oh, let's go. I fell in. 